what we've seen on, in the area is high levels of poverty, lack of jobs, lack of prospects. Despite the area being a fantastic area of natural beauty, I think losing a key industry like the steelworks on an area like Teesside, you know, had, had a massive issue. One of the huge challenges we've got, and uh, you, you hear people talk about it all the time, is the transportation links across country and uh, you know, across the north, where we're still very much reliant on Victorian railway systems, which uh, are um, wholly inadequate for what we need. And I think uh, you, you, you only need to spend some time on some of the motorway connections too. It's uh, the, the transfers, the times, the uh, the quality of the transport links that we've got are wholly inadequate to be able to support a regional economy and uh, those, the investment into the infrastructure to support that connectivity is absolutely paramount to economic growth. Working within the railways and engineering was never a, an, an, an option for me. I never knew it existed. With the cost of living crisis at the moment and the, 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 the sheer expense of university fees, there will be a lot of families that are put off. In the delivery of the Trans-Pennine route upgrade, which is a transformational programmes of work between Manchester, Leeds and York, and also HS2, that in order to deliver those projects concurrently, the industry would be deficient by up to 16,000 people by 2025. So how do we ensure that we have the engineers of the future, we have a workforce that is skilled and of the volume and capability to deliver those programmes? Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Tim Sheehan. In this episode, we've partnered with Atkins to look at the challenges facing England's regions and the decades-long programme of transport investment, business development and training that will be needed to address their imbalance with London and the South East. The United Kingdom has always been a divided patchwork land. Individual countries in the Union were shaped by ancient invasions of Romans and Anglo-Saxons. Within England, the settlement of much of the country by the Vikings established a boundary between the northern Danelaw and southern Wessex and Mercia. Divisions in the economy have more recent roots. The Industrial Revolution and the birth of the British Empire saw political and financial control centralised in London. Provincial towns developed local economies that each, in their own ways, supported trade or manufacturing. Trade flowed between western ports like Liverpool and Bristol. Steel was forged in Sheffield. Ships built in Teesside. Cotton processed in Manchester and Lancashire. A network of railways and canals was developed to transport these goods and commodities around the country and out to the world. By the second half of the 20th century, this economic system had been in place for two centuries and had raised living standards across the country. But the world, and England, was changing. The old order, with trade conducted and coordinated through a single metropole, 
was falling apart around the world. Consumers were no longer happy with bikes from Nottingham or pottery from Stoke, but wanted cars and fridges, smartphones and digital services, which required complex global supply chains. Investors looked increasingly to a world of free trade, directing finance wherever cheap labour and commodities could be found. As the economy in London and the surrounding counties surged, a wave of crises hit the regions. Motorways supplanted rail, and a 1963 Beeching report recommended halving the number of stations and scrapping thousands of miles of railway. State-owned enterprises in mining and steel production went into decline. Workers took to the picket lines in a series of long and disruptive strikes. Britain is not alone in seeing disparities between regions. One of the most well-known examples is that of Germany in the 1990s. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and its Western satellites, one German nation needed to be built out of two states that for decades had been on the front line of the Cold War. John Rayson is Managing Director for the North at Faithful and Gould. Over a three-decade career in engineering, he's had a first-hand view of how countries have fought to reduce regional disparities. The concept of regional disparities and regional rebalancing isn't something that's specific to the UK. You know, we've seen other countries with the likes of France and Germany, Japan and US um, over recent times embark on similar uh, regional rebalancing programs. I think the problem or the challenge that we have in the UK at the moment is that we are recognised as having the greatest regional disparities across all of the developed nations. The duration is one of the biggest challenges. The reunification of Germany was a 30-year programme. And uh, I, th I think we've got to be realistic about the uh, timescales on, uh, on delivering against some of these ambitious rebalancing programmes. And I think that's one of the things that certainly comes out of uh, the, the example in Germany is the, uh, uh, you know, it took 15 years to address the unemployment and it took a further 15 years to bring it back as a performing region that was closer to the national average. 30 years is a long time, isn't it? I think in the case of the UK, we were probably in a different part of the economic cycle when the concept of the Northern Powerhouse, which was instigated some eight years ago now by George Osborne, and uh, I think uh, was probably in a different economic place at that point in time. It's quite a buoyant economy, and so I think that place is in a, in a different starting point. British politicians had first started to pay attention to the problem of regional disparities in the 1990s, as the impact of globalisation on local communities became apparent. The major Blair and Brown governments took hesitant steps to devolve power to local authorities, headed by local mayors. These were able to bring more local control to questions of transport or business development. And more recently, the Northern Powerhouse programme focused on reinvigorating business and transport in former industrial cities, and national projects planned by central government in London's Whitehall, like the High Speed 2 rail programme and the Trans-Pennine route upgrade, aimed to improve rail connections between cities. The integration of national planning with local requirements has not always gone smoothly. To better understand what local regional leaders want for their communities, Atkins, with support from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership and the University of Durham's Business School, commissioned independent research company Trajectory to ask them their views. Control of Whitehall is seen by many across the Northern Powerhouse as being a very limiting factor. Part of the problem is 
the uh, the people in Whitehall very rarely come out of Whitehall. So to see what's needed, it's not about having complete control of regional taxes. It's about having control of the investments that are wisely spent back into the regional economy. And that, that is a huge challenge for us. There's a number of challenges that sit in uh, in the way of uh, delivering a, a long-term investment program like we're faced with. One of which, one of many things, uh, but one of which is undoubtedly the, the election window. The government can um, provide stimulus to various programmes, but inevitably they tend to have to fit within that maximum four-year cycle to drive economic growth and rebuild the business, whether it's you know, green technology or whatever it might be in the sort of engineering space or whatever it is to drive the economic growth through investment zones or industrial clusters. The regional leaders surveyed highlighted two key areas where change was needed. The main aspects that came out of those, the, the, the sort of politicians and the regional leaders wanted to see, was um, one was a levelling up of people and then the other ways of addressing inequalities, which is very much about the sort of um, skills academies and um, and providing the platform to train and support the communities. That in itself brings about health and well-being. And then the, the other aspect was the infrastructure elements of connecting the communities and providing the, uh, uh, the areas for the uh, economic growth. The challenges the English regions face are multifaceted. Businesses need transport links and a skilled workforce if they are to establish themselves. Local communities and young people in particular want fulfilling careers, but they also need good public transport links to get to those jobs if they are to stay in the region. Each of these challenges adds complexity to the task of regional rebalancing. But taken together and set against the backdrop of climate change and decarbonisation, they also have scope to form a foundation for growth. James Rose has been working on the development of Teesworks, a brownfield development near Redcar in the northeast of England. The local area was once a key centre for steel production and fabrication, and at one point there were more than 90 foundries along a 10-mile stretch of river, lighting up the skyline and putting cash in local pockets. Steel from those foundries was fabricated locally and shipped around the world. Well, it's got a real long history, so I guess going back some, large steelworks formed from the south bank of the River Tees from Middlesbrough down to Redcar. Steel and iron production and manufacturing, exporting globally, making a significant contribution to the steel industry in the UK. I think at its peak, about 40,000 jobs. Some really famous landmarks that have been supplied by steel from, from the area. So for example, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, um, the Tyne Bridge and Auckland Harbour Bridge were all manufactured steelworks from, from Teesides. In the 90s, global competition started to impact the area. Steel prices dropped and other cities around the world were better able to compete for jobs. By the millennium, the number of people employed in the steelworks had more than halved to 18,000. And soon, steel production ceased entirely. The closure left a hole in the heart of the community and a scar on the landscape. But it also created an opportunity to build something new 
ready for the energy transition and a green economy. Communities here have for centuries looked out east to the sea and Scandinavia, as much as south to London. Once it was the landing point for the first Viking invaders, and a thousand years later, it welcomes workers in the energy sector, as well as budget-conscious Norwegian drinkers. As energy production in the North Sea switches to renewables, a new development, Teesworks, will bring new jobs to the area focused on this new economy. Nearby, a new free port, Teesport, aims to bring cargo and wind turbine components to the area. And local and regional transport will, if the projects are completed, link businesses and communities here to the rest of the UK. It is a fantastic project for the area uh, and programme of works. So about 4,500 acres of brownfield site. It's the largest brownfield site development in Europe. The aspiration is to create around 20,000 jobs. We've already created about 1,000 uh, from industries um, which have been springing up in and around Tees Works. We've had around about 200 million investments so far to remediate the site, to, to demolish some of the existing steelworks facilities. We've attracted you know, net zero clients, commercial clients, offshore wind. So, so the whole net zero by 2050 for the UK, Teesworks plays right into achieving that objective from a regional perspective. So SIA of building uh, monopole facilities for offshore wind. We, we've also got GE and LM Wind who are, are building wind farm generators actually on site. So I think the advantages for international companies and UK companies to take advantage of a free port and access to the North Sea particularly is, is really exciting. And I think it's really exciting that we start to create new industries that will change the energy security balance of, uh, of the UK. There will be those type of manufacturing jobs that are being created, but there's also other type of roles being created. So not only is it going to be a net zero area um, for, for the country and for the Tees Valley, but other industries will, will develop around those key industries. The site is already attracting a number of probably 200 inquiries already from different sectors, which will create different jobs and, and require different skills into Tees Valley. So it's not just heavy industry, heavy, heavy engineering. I think the aspiration is that we retain our talent and skills um, in the region. And it's not people who, are, who have got those careers can see a, a career and a, and a life in the northeast rather than moving to a different part of the UK or overseas. Challenges remain though. One of the main concerns by local leaders surveyed by Trajectory was around skills. While many communities have a long industrial heritage, many who acquired their skills in the region have now left for jobs elsewhere, and the types of skills needed anyway are changing. And for those businesses and workers that remain, poor transport links stifle opportunity and limit potential. I get involved in quite a number of um, external meetings, conferences with with mayors and, and local government officials. And I think there's a plan. So you look at the Northern Powerhouse where there's a plan which was um, and a strategy which the government uh, created probably about seven or eight years ago now, Northern Powerhouse. But really, they, they've not seen some of that 
investment. So, for example, you know, extension to HS2, not happening now. Uh, Northern Power Rail investment to that, not really going to happen. But what we have seen on Teesside, to the credit of the, the mayor on Teesside, is uh, a significant investment into Teesworks. But the, the real issue, I think, for me is around uh, transportation networks and investment in those networks to facilitate economic growth, which has a massive impact on social value. The development around T sides, both logistically and for passengers, will take um, a real front seat in, in development for expanding the opportunities in the region. The area has many good transport links, south to London and north to Scotland by road and rail. It has a nearby airport and the new Freeport. But the Mayor's work on local transport and national investment in rail links across the Pennine connecting the North Sea with the Irish Sea and Atlantic will remain key. Braff is a good example uh, where it's, you know, it, it wasn't even planned to be on the HS2 link, but for Bradford to thrive and grow, and again, it's one of the most highly diverse cities that we've got in the country, then it needs to have effective transportation links, both by, by road and by rail. And I don't think this is happening. People are equally important. Many locals have turned away from a career in industry and engineering as opportunities have diminished. Others have taken their skills to jobs elsewhere in the UK or overseas. The, the mayor and the, the mayoral authority have been looking at skills mix and, and working closely with local universities and colleges and, and schools. They're able to then start and map out what some of these career opportunities might look like in the future, which then gives opportunities for for students, for, for university students to be able to plan what type of careers they, they are looking to develop. Engineering would be a great place to start if you were thinking about a career on Teesside, for example. Manufacturing around you know, off-site wind generation, hydrogen production, all these areas are going to require a high degree of skills. And it's not, it's not low-level skills. It's skills that are going to be both professional level, managerial level, operative levels. It's a real challenge for the area, you know, because, um, you know, a, a lot of the skills currently and talent that we have in the region, they, they, they don't see the opportunity locally. So they, they go and work in, in London or Manchester or Leeds or Sheffield. And, and hopefully the work that we're doing on Tees Works will start to attract that, those skills back. Businesses in Teesside are recruiting locally at graduate and apprentice level. But building the skills needed by new smart and sustainable industries needs to start much earlier. That's the challenge Jess Bates is working on. She's the Network Rail Account Director at Atkins and the Equality Diversion and Inclusion Lead for the Trans-Pennine Route Upgrade Alliance. The Trans-Pennine Route Upgrade is a vital part of the East-West Link's that are so important to local leaders in the regions. Building the upgrade, at the same time as HS2, will require vast numbers of workers, and they are simply not available yet. There was a study undertaken by the National Skills Academy for Rail, which indicated some quite shocking statistics that in the delivery of the Trans-Pennine Route Upgrade, which is a transformational programmes of work between Manchester, Leeds and York and also HS2. 
that in order to deliver those projects concurrently, the industry would be deficient by up to 16,000 people by 2025. So how do we ensure that we have the engineers of the future, we have a workforce that is skilled and of the volume and capability to deliver those programmes? And it's something that certainly is very close to my heart and close to the heart of Atkins in that we, we need to we need to act now rather than just talking about how do we create employment opportunities. For generations, career paths in industrial and mining cities were clear. Young people grew up in communities where there were jobs for life, starting with apprenticeships at 14 and providing work and progression all the way through to retirement. With the disappearance of these ways of working, young working class people across the country share a similar challenge. How to even imagine what career jobs may be available to them, what skills they will need and how to access opportunities. Many of those industrial era jobs for life were gender segregated. This sort of restriction is now understood to be discrimination. It restricts individual potential, it limits organisations' ability to recruit from the widest possible pool of skilled candidates, and it prevents employees from building skills. But perceptions of who might be suitable for jobs in construction and engineering are still shaped by these old ideas. Some groups of potential employees may face specific challenges to working in the sector. If they are not represented among leadership in the sector, those challenges may not be addressed. Taken together, these challenges and misperceptions deflect people away from a career in engineering and leave organisations facing a skills gap. So what is career deflection? Atkins commissioned a, a report which looked at the prevalence of different and um, protected characteristic groups leaving the industry. And it identified that, that women, those from ethnic minorities and those with disabilities were more likely to, to leave engineering than any other population or demographic. And there were a multitude of reasons around that. So um, it could be as a result of barriers to entry in the first place so that the industry doesn't feel very inclusive the way that it is, that when people are in the industry, there are alive and kicking barriers to progression. So things that are prohibiting people from increasing in seniority in the industry, for example. And generally, there is a, a vibe that engineering, it just isn't an attractive place to be. The first step to filling the skills gap is simply letting people know they are needed and that they can flourish in jobs in engineering and construction. That story needs to be told when potential employees are young. Young enough for them to not just start building the skills they will need, but to begin imagining themselves in these roles. If we think about it through the lens of absolutely young careers and creating an industry that, that young people want to be uh, involved in and want to seek a career in engineering. I don't think that storytelling exists. That line of sight isn't, it isn't created for young people in conversation when they're at school or work experience opportunities don't exist in their local community. One approach has been to hold STEM fairs and events in schools and colleges. As young people consider A-level or apprenticeship courses, or pick what to study at degree level, these events seek to recruit them to a career in science or engineering. But often they come too late. They might provide opportunities for those young people who have, under their own steam or with their parents' and elders' encouragement, 
started planning for a career in the sector, but they don't in themselves lead enough children to see these paths. For any person, regardless of age, it's so, so important to see role models and accessible leaders in a position that you envisage yourself and dream of yourself being, just to make that, that, that dream attainable. So be it a, a woman in a senior leadership position or someone with an invisible disability or from an ethnic minority background, ensuring that all of these people have have a platform to speak and talk about how refreshing and exciting their careers have been regardless of their stage at life is so important to inspire young people's mindsets as well. Jess has been working on new ways to reach children at the start of their education and to build a platform that will allow engineers from diverse backgrounds to share their experience with educators. So Atkins have developed a partnership with a national education charity Governors for Schools and what Governors for Schools do as an organisation is, is match um, and then recruit talented volunteers in, onto school governing boards to work with head teachers to be critical friends and influencers to uplift the education standards of any particular school. Some interventions in education like STEM fairs can be useful but are not always part of a joined up strategy. Jess takes the same approach as she would for planning an engineering project, studying every aspect, collecting data, and then analysing it to identify the most effective actions. Jess was able to identify four key pillars, which have shaped her development of Atkins' work with governors for schools. Pillar one is identifying primary schools where we can have school governors work on school boards Pillar two is looking at special educational needs schools and girls' schools. Pillar three is to work with schools in areas of deprivation. So these are areas whereby we know social mobility um, is stifled in the first place. So how, how can we create a line of sight back into education and engineering that may not otherwise have existed? But the fourth pillar, which touches on all elements of diversity and inclusion and feeds into that accessible role model, I want to be her, him, that person, is we want to, from across the Atkins business, identify governors from all the diverse walks of life and society that can be represented on governing boards and therefore wholeheartedly increase the diversity in schools. So we've taken a real conscious effort to make sure that we are listening to the deficiencies that currently exist, not just within engineering, but are trying to create this work stream of people into, into engineering as well. For many people who are not seen as fitting in with our shared mental image of an engineering leader, it's often true that you have to work twice as hard to get half the recognition. For many people, and many women in particular, there is already an expectation that they will make a deep commitment to their working lives, while also taking on exhausting care roles. It was important for Jess to make sure that potential governors could fit a third commitment to education, alongside their existing commitments to work and family. Working with schools can be a satisfying experience, allowing governors to play a rewarding role in their community. 
governors for schools have done a piece of research across all of their schools that they work with and typically to, to be a governor you contribute about six hours of your time a month and that can be your commitments towards school meetings, going and visiting schools, going and talking to kids. A lot of schools recognise that they thrive with the input and insight and support of governors and therefore making meetings accessible um, to, to the needs of everyone is, is really, really important to, to get the, the, the school support required. So um, a lot of governing meetings tend to happen after school hours or in the evening. There are hybrid meetings available for those that, that may not be able to join for whatever reason. Schools also give an awful lot of training support. It is a unique and pioneering partnership and I think this this complete refocus on how do we enrich the curriculum from within is really exciting for people, not just because it will be galvanised into the relationship we have with the school, but more than that, it's an incredible personal development opportunity for our staff. So you don't have to be a parent, you don't have to have any experience in education, you do not have to be at a certain time within your career to be a school governor. What it will give you is experience operating um, or at board level in strategic planning and programming and decision making, engagement with other members of the community. The impact these governors make will ripple out through their communities into the wider economy. Volunteer governors can help show children and young people that engineering can be a rewarding career. In a few years' time, today's pupils will be apprentices and engineering students, ready to use their skills to build a sustainable transport system and bringing rewarding green jobs across the English regions. 48% of business leaders in the north um, who said that the workforce of the future and the skills crisis was high on their agenda of, of concern. The future is green roles, decarbonisation roles, thinking about it in the context of the rail infrastructure sector, um, the move towards electrification and electric trains is really, really key. And currently to be able to implement that infrastructure, the, the volume of skills doesn't exist. It's really important that we work with young people to recognise that the traditional subjects and skills and career conversations that they be, may be having now, they may completely change in the future because the jobs of here and today may not be the jobs of the future. So everyone at the moment needs to have their eyes on, on the prize as to what a green future looks like. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North, edited and hosted by me, Alex Conacher, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our own highly connected Northern powerhouse is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Atkins. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media.